Northridge, we exist to help people move closer to Christ. We believe that following Jesus is a journey, and we want to help you through that journey any way we can. We pray that you grow in your walk with God through this message today. So prepare your heart and mind for this teaching by our group life pastor, Tim Smith. We are continuing in our sermon series and looking at four different words, four different Greek words for love. Last week we looked at agape. This week we want to look at the word storge. Storge is a word that most often refers to family love, to loving your biological family. Now, what's kind of interesting in this is that the word as you see it here in the positive form in terms of love, uh, family love, is not used in the New Testament. However, it is used twice in the negative. Think anti-love or astorge is the way it says it. For example, um, for those who refuse to acknowledge the existence of God, Romans 1.31 says this, that they have no understanding, no fidelity, no love. That's storge. They don't even understand how to love their family properly when they don't recognize God and no mercy. In 2 Timothy 3.3, it talks about the wickedness of the last days, and it describes people who are without love. They're without storge. They don't love and care for their family as they should. They're unforgiving and slanderous. In fact, in the classical Greek, the ancients used storge to describe instinctual affection. That is, just the love that instinctually flows from like a parent to their child and vice versa or the love and compassion there is between siblings. So storge refers to the love most often of your biological family even when, and this is critical, even when they are hard to love. Now, if you were here with us last week, you know that Pastor Mike talked about agape, about how as a follower of Christ, we're to love with that love of the will, the love that is determined, the love that is sacrificial, the love that is unconditional, which is the only way to love people who are different from us or are difficult to love. Well, we're going to use the same, that same principle except talk about your family, your biological family in terms of storge. And if you've ever been a part of a family who has been under some serious dysfunctionality, my hope today is that you can learn that there is a real family survival kit. There is real hope. And to do that, I want us to talk about a man in the Old Testament by the name of Joseph. Now, his story begins in the book of Genesis in chapter 37. If you have a Bible and would like to turn there or want to turn there on your devices, if you don't have a Bible, by the way, we're more than happy to give you one free of charge. Just go to our uh, visitor counters out there. We'll be happy to do that. But here's a man that you will find has a home life that is surely less than ideal, but his accomplishments are incredible. And he teaches what I believe is this sermon in a sentence, and that is this, that loving a dysfunctional family can only be done well when applying God's love, forgiveness, and compassion. And no one, as I hope you'll see here as we go through this story, does that better than Joseph. So I want us to look at why he needed to overcome the hurt of his family, how he did it, and then the truths that we can take or learn from his experience. Now, you don't have to look very far or hard to understand that Joseph's parents were far from perfect and actually were hateful to one another. 
In fact, we begin to get a clue about Joseph's family in chapter 37 and verse 2 where it says this. It says, Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Billah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives, and he brought their father a bad report about them, about his brothers. Now immediately you know that this is not a God-designed home. Because from the very beginning, God has designed a home to be one woman for one man for one lifetime. And that is not what is happening here. In fact, he said in Genesis 2.24 this, that a man will leave his father and his mother and be united to his what? His wife, not wives. But here you see that Joseph has stepbrothers. They're not from a divorced family, but they're from a father who is a polygamist. In fact, allow me to relate to you how Jacob acquired his wives because this gives us a real backstory into Joseph's family, family experiences. I mean, this is a mixed-up soap opera that makes the young and restless look like the old and tame. Um, so if we move backwards a little bit to Genesis 27, you'll see that Joseph's father Jacob deceived his father Isaac into giving him the family inheritance that rightly belonged to his twin brother Esau. Now, because of this, Esau wants to kill Jacob. So Jacob has got to flee from his life, flee for his life, and he ends up in the land of one of his relatives, his uncle Laban. And Jacob goes to work for Laban. After just a month of labor, this is what Laban says to him. He says, you shouldn't work for me without pay just because we are relatives. But Jacob doesn't want money. You see, Laban had two daughters. The older one is Leah, who by all accounts is not very attractive, but the younger daughter, Rachel, is drop-dead gorgeous. In fact, most translations talk about Leah. In fact, verse 17 of that 29th chapter, it says that she had weak eyes, which is just another kind of kind way to say she wasn't much to look at. In fact, I love the way the Living Bible paraphrases that verse. It says that Rachel was shapely, and in every way of beauty, Leah had lovely eyes. You know, it's kind of like you're going on a blind date and you go, well, what does she look like? Well, she's got pretty eyes. <laughs> you know you're in trouble, right? Uh, so that's what's kind of going on here in terms of Leah and Rachel. So it's no surprise in verse 18 that it tells us that Jacob falls madly in love with Rachel. And he says to Laban this, listen, I'll work for you for seven years. In return, you give me your daughter Rachel as my wife. And great news, Laban agrees. In fact, I think you may have one of the most, if not the most romantic verse in all of the Bible in Genesis 29, 20. It says this, so Jacob served seven years to get Rachel, but they seemed like only a few days to him because of his great love for her. Oh, <laughs> doesn't that just kind of make him melt? That's how much he loved Rachel. Now, when the seven years are up, there's this elaborate wedding. <clears throat> Now, in order to comprehend what happens next, you need to understand two things about their culture. First of all, it was customary in the Hebrew culture for the older daughter to always be married first. Secondly, those marriages in that day took place at night. They didn't have anything but smoky torches, and the bride was to wear a heavy veil so her face was hidden all the way into the wedding night. So Laban uses this to pull a fast one. He arranges for Jacob not to marry beautiful Rachel, but old weak-eyed Leah. (laughs) Now remember, it's dark. Jacob thinks he's got Rachel when he doesn't. 
Can you imagine in the morning when Jacob wakes up, he looks over, instead of seeing Rachel, he sees Leah. He must have thought, I know my mama said that women who didn't wear makeup look different, but this is absolutely ridiculous. So he is absolutely furious, and he runs to Laban, and he says this. He says, what is this that you have done to me? I served you for Rachel, didn't I? Why have you deceived me? Well, Laban tells him about the whole custom regarding the older daughter, and he does give him Rachel, but Jacob has got to work for another seven years. But the real problem in the marriage is Jacob treats Rachel like a queen and Leah like dirt. You know, it's always difficult for children to grow up in a home where there is a lack of love. But in this home, you've got two sisters who are bitter rivals. Leah is jealous of Rachel because she's beautiful and loved by Jacob. And Rachel becomes jealous of Leah because soon Leah is able able to give Jacob four sons to Rachel's zero. To compensate, Rachel finally says to Jacob, look, I can't give you children, so I want you to take my maid, Billa, and you get her pregnant, and we'll adopt her children. Now, if Jacob had been more faithful to God, he would have said, Rachel, honey, listen, I know this is really hard and tough, but we're not going to make this right by committing immorality with your servant. But he doesn't say that. He sleeps with Billa, and she bears him two sons, not to be outdone, Leah insists that Jacob sleep with her maid, Zilpah, and she gives him two more sons. And then Leah gives birth to two additional sons and a daughter. Now, if you're keeping score, Jacob now has ten sons and one daughter by three different women, but no children from his beloved Rachel. Finally, Rachel's womb is open, and she says in Genesis 30, verse 23, God has taken away my disgrace. She has a son, and she named him Joseph. But can you imagine the turmoil in this family that Joseph was growing up in? He's got an uncle that's deceiving and just really conniving. He's got a father who's a polygamist. He's got a mother who is jealous and insecure. I'm sure you've heard that old saying, when mama ain't happy, nobody's happy. Well, here are four women that are unhappy, all in the same home. You can call it a blended family, but I'd call it a zoo. (laughs) Who would have a chance to actually grow up faithful to the Lord in a home like that? And then to make matters worse, while Jacob is still just a little boy, or while Joseph is still a little boy, his dad Jacob has an ugly falling out with Uncle Laban, and so he and his family have to leave everything and flee. So now Jacob's got to go undergo that insecurity of that transition, and then came the worst blow of all. When Joseph is about 10, his mother, Rachel, dies, giving birth to the 12th son, Benjamin. So here's Joseph. He's been exposed to a hateful environment, violence, threats, immorality, jealousy, a fearful move, and now the death of his own mom. If there was anyone who could have used his home life as an excuse not to be faithful to God, I think it's Joseph. But not only must Joseph overcome hateful parents, he's got to battle hurtful brothers. I'm sure it's no surprise to any of you that there was a terrible sibling rivalry in this home. You bring together 12 sons and one sister from from four different women in the same house, and you've got constant competition. And as you read the story, it becomes very obvious that Leah's sons understood that their mother was not loved by their father, and I'm sure the sons of the maids all felt inferior. I mean, this is a tinder box home ready to explode. And to make matters worse, Jacob does not conceal the fact that Joseph was his very favorite. 
We're back in chapter 37. Look at verse 3. It says this. It says, now Israel, that's the name God gave to Jacob, loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age and, of course, to Rachel, who he loved. And he made, so he made an ornate robe for him. Now, maybe if you grew up in church and you were in Sunday school, you described this robe as a coat of many colors. Well, we don't know exactly what it was, but we know it was a garment of distinction given only to Joseph and absolutely hated by his brothers. And as an aside here, Anytime families show favoritism, they're just fanning the flames of sibling rivalries. Now, I understand there's going to be some times that you naturally show favoritism. Irma Bombeck said it like this, every mother has a favorite child. It's the one that needs her the most at any given moment. But that wasn't Jacob. Joseph got the best clothes, the easiest jobs, the highest compliments, and that was neither good for Joseph or for his brothers. And in my own experience, I've learned as a father of three and especially as a grandparent of 11 that we need to make a double effort to let all of our children know that they are equally loved. In fact, I heard the story not long ago of a second grade school teacher who told of a student of hers who came up to her and said, now teacher, my sister and I are in the same class and we're the same age, but we're not twins. One of us, one of us is adopted, but we just can't remember which. That's the kind of equal affection that's needed. But that's not what Joseph had. Because of favoritism, Jacob showed Joseph his brothers absolutely hated him. Now, I think there's a couple of reasons for his brothers having so much animosity toward Joseph. One is, is I don't think Joseph was very sensitive or, or maybe he was naive. It just doesn't seem that Joseph has a sense of his brother's antagonism nor understand the depth of their hostility toward him. Otherwise, why would he wear that stupid coat all the time? In fact, in verse 4, it says this, When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. But the second thing here that helps us understand how the brothers hated him were the dreams that Joseph had and then felt necessary to relate to them. Starting in verse 5, it says that Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, listen to the dream that I had. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. In other words, you all had to bow down and worship me. Now, it's one thing to dream that dream. It's another thing to tell your brothers about it. And then he has a second dream, and he's got to tell that one too. Verse 9, it says, I had another dream. Can't, don't you just bet the brothers just were waiting anxiously to hear that one? You can see how this causes tremendous bitterness because that second dream is like the first one where they're all bowing down to him. So they had tremendous bitterness. And when I say tremendous, I mean murderous. In fact, one day, Jacob sends Joseph to check on his brothers. Verse 18. It says, but they saw him in the distance. They saw Joseph. And before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. Here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. Can you just hear the hate dripping off their voices? Now, thankfully, 
the oldest brother, Reuben, stops the murder plot. But in verses 23 and 24, it tells us that they stripped Joseph, they ripped his coat to pieces, they beat him up, and they threw him into a dry cistern or a dry well. And then in verse 35, it shows some of the character of these boys. It says this, As they sat down to eat their meal, I mean, how callous do you have to be to plot the murder of your brother, treat him like that, and then sit down and eat? In fact, I want you to remember this incident in a few moments. The last of verse 25 tells us that they looked up and they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead, and they were on their way to Egypt. So they decided they would sell their brother into slavery. The fact that this caravan came in just that particular time a coincidence? I don't think so. I think a God incidence, especially when you continue on with what happens next in Joseph's story. In fact, we'll fast forward some 20 plus years. Joseph, with God's help, interprets some of Pharaoh's, the king of Egypt's dreams, and Joseph literally saves all of Egypt from a terrible famine. And so because of that, he becomes the second most powerful man in all of Egypt. Now, Joseph's family is back in Israel. They're experiencing a lack of food also. And so Jacob sends his boys to Egypt, all except the youngest, Benjamin, in order to buy food. And who do they have to buy it from? Yep, Joseph. Now, remember, it's been 20-plus years, and Joseph dresses and looks like an Egyptian, so they don't recognize him, but he recognizes them. What does he do? Does he kill them on the spot? Does he sell them into slavery? No. Even though, his parents, even though his parents were hateful, his brothers hurtful, Joseph remains faithful to God. And as his brothers appear before him, he has the perfect chance to get even. He doesn't do it. But what he does do is he puts his brothers through a series of tests. Why? Because I believe that Joseph wanted to determine if his brothers had changed Were his half-brothers still liars? Were they as jealous of his younger brother Benjamin as they had been of him? Was Benjamin even still alive? Was his dad alive? You see, Joseph knew bad men don't become better by increasing their blessing. And so he shows incredible wisdom and remarkable restraint. I think as his brothers stand before him, not recognizing him, that his heart pounded with emotion. And yet he held back in order to find out what kind of men his brothers had become. And so first, he puts them through a test of adversity. Joseph accuses his brothers of being spies. Remember when they thought that of him? And he throws them in jail, which some Egyptian scholars say was no more than a hole in the ground. Sound like a cistern? (laughs) And for three days... He tells them that they're spies and they may be punished. But after three days, he simply allows them to go home, get out of jail, and go home with grain, with food. But there is a condition. He says, here's what I need you to do. I want you to take this food home to your starving families, but you've got to relieve one of the brothers here. And you've got to bring Benjamin back with you in order for this one I keep, this hostage, to be released. If you'll do that, then that'll prove to me that you are not spies. I find it really interesting in chapter 42 and verse 21 that while they're in this jail, this cistern, that they're still haunted by their original sin against Joseph. This is what they say. Surely we are being punished because of our brother. 
We saw how distressed he was when he pleaded with us for his life, but we would not listen. That's why this distress has come upon us. At least they're willing to admit that in their adversity. But then Joseph gives them the test of prosperity. They return with Benjamin, and Joseph treats them like royalty. He throws them a feast. He seats them by age, which just really kind of freaks them out. And then he gives Benjamin five times more food than the others. Now, you remember how they reacted when Joseph was the favorite and pampered. But here there seems to be no resentment. And Joseph is just about convinced they've changed. And so he gives them a last test, the one of loyalty. Joseph sends them home with ton, just all kinds of grain. The brothers are ecstatic. They've got food. They've got Simeon, who was the one that was the hostage. They've got Benjamin. All is good until they get out of town and are stopped by the Egyptian police. You see, Joseph has secretly placed one of his own expensive cups into the grain bag that belonged to Benjamin. And the police tell the brothers, listen, there's a missing cup of Joseph, and we're trying to find it. And if we find that one of you all have it, the guilty person is going to be put to death. And so they search the bags of grain, and to the boy's horror, the cup is found in Benjamin's sack. So Benjamin is arrested, and we read an incredibly important verse about the boy's character at this time in chapter 44, verse 13. It says this, When Benjamin's arrested, at this they tear, tore their clothes, then they all loaded their donkeys and returned to the city, to Egypt, to the palace. These are the same guys that 20 years ago had just written off their brother Joseph, but they won't write off Benjamin now. They're all going to go back to be able to, to help him. And, and when, you, when they get back in front of Ju, uh, Joseph Judah, who's one of the brothers, gives one of the most heart-wrenching pleas you'll ever read. With great emotion, he says, Please, sir, we cannot go home without Benjamin. You see, our father had another son who he loved dearly, and he lost him. I could not bear to put my father through so much misery again. And then in verses 33 and 34, he says this, Now then, please let your servant remain here as my Lord's slave in place of the boy. Judah says, I'll, I'll stay as your slave. How can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? No, no, he says, do not let me see the misery with Benjamin not coming back that would come to my father. Here's Judah saying, I'll take his place. And you know what? Centuries later, there would be another one come from the tribe of Judah, his name Jesus, who would offer to be a substitute for all people, all brethren. Well, this emotion, this love shown by Judah is more than Joseph can take. In verse 1 of chapter 45, it says this, And then Joseph could no longer control himself, and he cried out, have everyone leave my presence. So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. What an emotional moment this must have been. Can you see the brothers? <laughs> Their mouth just drops open. This is Joseph? The one that we ridiculed, the one that we abused, the one that we sold into slavery, and now he has all authority over us? And so in verse 5, Joseph says something incredible. After revealing who he is, he says this, Do not be distressed, 
And do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. In fact, later, when Jacob dies, there are a few of his brothers who are still afraid that maybe Joseph was just waiting for dad to die to take revenge. But Joseph says something even more important in chapter 50, verse 19. He says, don't be afraid. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. Wow. That's Joseph. He's no doubt from a dysfunctional family. His parents were hateful. Mom that's jealous and insecure. A dad that's unfair and pampering. His brothers were so hurtful. And yet Joseph remains faithful to God through all of this. So what can we learn from this story Well, let me close by asking you to remember five truths that I think we can take from Joseph's story when it comes to storge, to loving our families. The first one is this. All dysfunctionality is not the same. You be compassionate. You know, the word dysfunctional when it comes to families, and even that phrase dysfunctional families, kind of become popular in the last couple of decades. And somebody has once said, you know what? Every family is dysfunctional, and that's true in the strictest sense of the word. I mean, no family is perfect. But listen, there's a huge difference between, say, an overly pessimistic uncle and brothers who are so resentful they want to kill you. And if you look at your family life and and it's like mine, and I have to say, you know what? I I had it pretty easy. I, I didn't have any super serious dysfunctionality in my family. And if that's your case too, we need to be really compassionate for those who have really been hurt. Because it is difficult to stay faithful to God. If you grow up in a family where there was abuse or multiple divorce or chemical addiction or some other serious problem. And I really believe as Christ followers that we need to realize that there are a lot of people today dealing with some awful hurts and humiliations. We need to be compassionate. I mean, maybe they're not where we think they ought to be, but do you know what they've had to endure? But the second lesson may be even more important, especially for those of you who have had some serious dysfunctionality in your family, and that is do not fall into the enemy's snare of resentment and bitterness. Look forward. I know it's difficult to be faithful to God when you grow up in a serious dysfunctional family, but it's possible. If that's anything Joseph teaches us, it's that. And sometimes we so focus on our past environment that we think we're locked into failure. But there comes a time when we need to look forward and not backward. Please hear this. Your past does not have to rule your present. Your past does not have to rule your present. Joseph overcame horrible circumstances to become a faithful, successful servant of God, and you can too. Here's a third lesson. Treat your family members in a godly way. Forgive without enabling Take a cue from Joseph. He was forgiving. Because forgiveness, if nothing else, is the refusal to take revenge when you have the chance. And that was Joseph. But while he did not get even, he also took the time to see if his brothers wanted his help. He didn't simply enable his brother's character faults. Listen, you can't help someone who doesn't want help. But it's also not unforgiving to ask for repentance and resolution, maybe even in some cases reimbursement, if you're doing that to help the person, to have real change, for you to see real change. 
But here's the fourth lesson and something you do re- no matter what has happened, and that is you pray for your family members regardless, no matter what they've done to you. Some of you here have got siblings or parents that have hurt you deeply. And not only have they hurt you, but they don't share your faith. Even worse, they may ridicule your beliefs and commitment. You make sure that you don't fall into the temptation of doing tat for tit for tat, you know, to, to be able to say, you know what, well, how about you? And take revenge or put them just completely out of your mind and shelve them. As bad as Joseph's brothers were to him, he was able to want their best. And you can too. And the best way I know to do that is every day pray for them. Don't flaunt your faith, but live a consistent life that shows your love for Jesus and continually and constantly lift them up to God that they may see and come to him. And here's the last lesson, and I think the most important. God is and has always been good. Trust him. Do not forget Please don't forget that you have a perfect heavenly father and a sinless brother in Jesus Christ who loves you the same yesterday, today, and forever. And faithfulness is the greatest principle to learn from all this. Joseph was treated horribly, but he kept his eyes on the one who always treated him well and never let him down. And if you will put your trust in God, no matter what your family members have done to you, no matter what anyone else has done to you, or even what your circumstances are, you'll be able to say, as to Joseph, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for giving us this story of Joseph and how much we can learn from it. So this morning, I I want to pray especially for three groups of people. First of all, for those that have had a good family life compared to some real serious dysfunctionality. Help us to be thankful for that, but also help us to be compassionate to those who haven't not to judge them, not to, to expect them to be more than they are, but to really give them the love and understand that they're hurting and they've had serious, serious dysfunctionality happen to them. And I would pray for them, Lord, those that are in the sound of my voice that have gone through some horrible things, maybe abuse, maybe divorce, maybe chemical addiction, whatever it is in their family. I would ask that most of all, you would help them to look to you, to pray for their family members and to trust you. And God, I would also pray for all of us, no matter what our family background is, is that that will happen for us that we will place our trust in you, for you have never let us down. You are always there. Your love for us is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And we thank you and praise you for that in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message. You can keep up with what's happening at Northridge on your mobile device through our Northridge Christian app. If you have any questions about Northridge, you can contact us at info at northridge.online.